Hello everyone, uh, welcome back to Legends of the Spire. I'm Dave and I've been away for the summer break, uh, but back and ready and raring to go with more podcasts. Uh, I've been having to think about how it all runs uh, over the summer and it's very much not going to be different really. I really enjoy speaking to the former players and managers and people connected with the club uh, of Chesterfield, uh, so that's not going to change. Uh, I, it is getting harder <laughs> to find them, uh, in all honesty. Um, so it, they may become uh, more infrequent uh, as we get through the season, uh, but we'll see. Uh, if people get back to me, if people are up for being interviewed and we've got time uh, in everyone's busy diaries, then I will get them recorded and get them out there. And I've certainly got some podcasts to get us over the next kind of four or five weeks, so no problem there. Uh, on the podcast this week is Laurie Madden. Uh, now, Laurie uh, had a really great career at clubs like Charlton, uh, Sheffield Wednesday and Wolves before joining Chesterfield when he was very much a veteran in 1993. He was part of John Duncan's uh, promotion winning team uh, and it was really interesting having a chat with him about that time at the club. Uh, he then went on to have a really good uh, journalism career as well uh, so it was good to speak to him about post playing career and then also uh, he had a really great perspective of John Sheridan and Paul Cook as people that he played with uh, so he was with John Sheridan at Sheffield Wednesday and Paul Cook at Wolves. And I think especially when he was talking about Paul Cook and how he treated younger players when he was uh, a player, uh, has very much come to fruition in him as a manager as well. So I think it's a really interesting listen. As always, we are uh, at Spire Legends on Twitter and Instagram, Legends of the Spire on Facebook. So it'd be great to hear from you. And if you haven't seen already on social media, I am starting an old school paper fanzine. I'm calling it Linda's Sandwich Shop after the amazing sandwich shop around that Saltergate era and uh, looking for contributors. So you don't need any experience. I'm quite happy for it, just be ramblings on a page. So do get in touch with me at legendsofthespire at outlook.com. Send me an email or get in touch with me on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. But without further ado, in this incredibly windy Leeds, uh, let's go to a new podcast. Here we are with Laurie Madden. Basically, uh, growing up, like most people in the East End, we used to play over at Hackney Marshes, which um, is quite a famous sort of area for, for talent spot. There used to be about 100 football fields. It's actually opposite now. It's opposite the, um, the Olympic Park near Stratford. Mm. Um, and it used to be busy, packed every Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon with all the teams from... East London and further afield playing there. And um, it was a big area for scouts to come and see because, A, you had 100 pitches so you could watch a lot of players in one <laughs> go. Also, it was a very fer fertile growing area. You know, I mean, if you think about it, there's certain areas in the country that doesn't seem to produce players. There's other areas that predominantly do produce players. And East London had a big knack of producing a lot of players, a bit like, you know, the North East is another good hunting ground and, very, you know, various places yeah. like that. So you can imagine if you're a scout of a, of a club, it was, you know, Hackney Marshes was a godsend for you where you've got 100, yeah. 100 games going on at any one time, you know, over the weekend, you know. So, yeah, that's where I sort of... Um, uh, you know, and it, it was, uh, they had cow sheds there. They didn't have the dressing rooms like we have today. So you used to have like these um, old cow sheds where afterwards you had these muddy boots that you used to clean with the taps and all that type of stuff. So um, it wasn't glamorous, but that's what, what we all grew up with. Yeah. And I, I heard you mention on another uh, thing that you'd done that it was either a, usually a choice between football or boxing when you were growing up. Yeah, uh, well, Bethnal Green at that time was uh, reps and boxing, which was a very reputable uh, boxing club. And a lot of players, uh, John X. Tracy, Magri, Charlie Magri, a lot of boxers went through reps and made it professionally and became sort of British champions and various other things. So in terms of um, sport, boxing and football were the two main sports in, uh, you know, things like cricket and rugby just weren't heard of, really. Yeah. So how did you juggle your time then between kind of education and trying to start a football career? How did you balance it all? Um, well, it was okay. Initially, I was at Arsenal uh, playing for their youth team. And then they asked me to sign uh, as an apprentice in those days, as it was called. I'm sure they call it something else these days. 
Uh, Bertie Mee was manager at the time, and uh, he um, said, would you like to sign on as an apprentice? And I was doing my O-levels at that time, so I said, well, I can't really. So I stayed on doing my O-levels. And then two years later, I was asked again to sign pros this time. I was offered a two-year contract at Arsenal. Uh, and I did my A-levels and I got good enough grades to go to university. So then I had a bit of a dilemma to make. What do I do? Do I stay at Arsenal with a two-year contract or do I go to university? And uh, it was an interesting one. My mother wanted me to sign for Arsenal. My father wanted me to go to university. <laughs> and uh, at that time, Bob Wilson was the goalkeeper at Arsenal. And uh, Bertie said, you know, I'm taking off my Arsenal hat here, but if I was you, I'd go to university. But he said, have a word with Bob Wilson. Bob came into the game late. He went to Loughborough University. He did a degree. Have a word with Bob. So I went to see Bob Wilson. I said, Bob, can I, uh, you know, a bit of advice and explain the situation. He said, if I was you, I'd sign for Arsenal. So I had my mum and dad, totally different. I had the manager and the goalkeeping coach of Arsenal in Scotland telling me something different. So anyway, to cut a long story short, I made up my own mind and I went to university. At that time, I think the, the thing was only about 4% of the population went to university compared to now where the government's target is more like 50%. So I thought at that time there wasn't, I mean, if you were starting off now and the rewards and riches that are in the game, I think I probably would have made a different choice. But at that time, we were living in a different era, a different world, and I was looking more for the long term and having an education, you know. And just, just a word on Bob Wilson. He was a guest on the podcast well, about a year ago, I think. Um, he's, a, he's a great, great bloke, isn't he? It was, it was great having a chat with Bob Wilson. Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever, you, whatever advice Bob gave, he obviously gave it sincerely. You know, it was a view that he took. Um, I didn't actually take it, but, you know, I've, I've got a lot of time for him because he gave me the time to talk to me. And, uh, and I, you know, I was a very still a relatively young lad and he took the time. He was, as I said, first team goalkeeper at Arsenal at the time. He was also playing for Scotland in World Cup matches and all the rest of it. But he went out of his way and, I, you know, I can't thank him enough for it. Did you put football out of your mind then for a bit? When, when you were at university? Well, not really, because even though I went to university, I used to tra- I went to Manchester University. So even though on a, Saturday, on a Friday night, I used to travel down to London, I used to play for the Arsenal uh, youth team and then the reserve team. So for a couple of years, uh, I played for Arsenal reserve team. So I used to travel down every, um, every sort of uh, weekend and uh, play for Arsenal reserves. And then it was, uh, it was Mansfield, wasn't it? Where you kind of well, it was actually through the Arsenal connection at the time. Dave Smith was the reserve team coach at Arsenal. And then he got the job at Mansfield. And later on, he got, uh, he got a certain amount of uh, you know, becoming famous and notorious for getting Plymouth Argyle in the lower divisions to the semi-final of the FA Cup. So um, Dave went to Mansfield and he rang me up and he said, would you like to come and play for Mansfield, which is obviously meant playing in the football league. And the other thing was, it was a shorter distance from Manchester to Mansfield. So I did, you know, so I, uh, that was my first step in playing in the um, football league at that time, about 18, 19 years of age. Yeah, I was going to say, I suppose it, it wasn't... Uh... It wasn't too strange then moving out of London, was it, if you were already kind of up around Manchester anyway? with the Yeah, as I say, it wasn't bad. It was, as I said, I knew Dave as well, so I, I, he'd been the reserve team coach at Arsenal. So there was a certain amount of familiarity, but obviously this was a big step up for him, being a reserve team coach, at, uh, you know, even though it was a top club, but moving up from a first team coach, uh, a reserve team coach to manager of a football league, so it was a big step up for him. And so it was, you know, quite a nice feeling when he come and, and sort of asked me to come on board. <coughs> so what kind of player were you at the, at the start of your career then? Did you, did, it, did you change kind of how you played, positions, anything like that throughout your career? Or yeah, was, uh, uh, I played for uh, Hertfordshire at the time, under 15s, and I was centre forward. And then uh, gradually over the years, I sort of worked my back. I mean, I played for... Um, uh, Charlton for a long period of time in midfield before I went back to centre half, and then eventually being and I sort of become a regular defender there on in after that. Mm. And I suppose that is, that means you, I mean, and nowadays uh, especially all, all your all your defenders nowadays are all ball playing defenders, aren't they? You have to be really good on the ball, don't you? Nowadays, so I suppose back then it kind of helps if you had a bit of. Well, the other thing you didn't have the squads that you 
Hughes was at uh, when I was at Charlton. I think I played in seven or eight different positions. And when I was at Millwall, I think I played in about nine. So one minute you were playing right wing, central midfield, next minute left back or centre half. Uh, uh, you know, that was so from that point of view, it was quite a good experience in that you got used to playing in different positions. So, um, yeah, I think in the long run, it, it, was, it, was, it was beneficial for me. Uh, and it means you're on the pitch, I suppose, which is the most important thing, isn't it? And the day wherever you're playing. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. As I said, you know, we did. They didn't have the big squads. You know, I mean, you know, we talk about the modern day football. One of the things is the squad system. Now the, the squads are quite big. They weren't that big when uh, we were playing, and, and so you know, you had to be prepared to move around to fit in. People getting injured, suspended, people losing form, that type of stuff. You know. Of the weekend was Charlton's win at Chesterfield, producing one of the best goals of the weekend, scored by Derek Hales. And he gets the sort of crosses in that front players really love. Down from Robinson, and here is Hales, and the first sight he had of goal, and he really made the most of it. Yeah, and you you touched a bit on Charlton, so you're at Charlton, weren't you? You had a couple of years at Boston and then ended up at uh, ended up with Charlton that was kind of you had a I noticed I was looking last night you had a kind of relegation promotion one of those seasons where you you kind of bounced back at that at Charlton didn't you yeah well I had that twice in my career because we got relegated at Charlton and then bounced back the following year and the same at Sheffield Wednesday we got relegated under Big Ron and then the following year we got promoted it was also the year we won the cup again you know cup final against Man United um, so I've had two sort of relegations and promotions. As I said, when I was at Boston, uh, I messed up with Howard Wilkinson then. Um, and we won the Northern Premier League at that time. And then at Mansfield, before that, we'd won the old fourth division. They got two promotions in two seasons at Mansfield. So um, coming to Charlton and getting relegated was my first uh, downside, if you like to put it that way. But then, as I say, we rectified that within a year, within a season, and we were back up again. You know, it's a good, it's a good way to start your career, isn't it? Getting plenty of bits of <laughs> silverware along the way. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, also, you know, along my way, I come, you know, I had a lot of different managers. You know, uh, people like uh, Howard Wilkinson, George Graham, uh, Ron Atkinson. You know, all managers who were reasonably successful, but all in a different way. Mm. Who did you really like playing on the on the most? Who did you feel like really really? Uh, I think Ron Atkinson. Um, I mean, Howard was basically uh, when he was at Sheffield Wednesday. I always thought Howard was ahead of his time. His preparation was meticulous, attention to detail. He was he was into diets. He was into football analysis. He was into all these things that we now take for granted in the modern day, but Howard was a pioneer in that and he was very much into that sort of thing. Um, it was very intense. Um, you know, uh, you know, he, he was also, I think, um, he took, I, he took a bit of a leaf out, I think of the American football coaches where he thought he was motivated. We would have team talks, inspirational team talks for an hour, hour and a half, you know, um, on a regular basis, you know. So at times, with it, by the time we were going out, I remember people like Nick Lyons, you know, he'd be banging his head against the dressing room door. He couldn't wait to get out. Um, and then we had Ron Atkinson, who was a totally different kettle of fish. Um, and we'd be looking at the 230 at Ascot before we went out to play. And then his team talks were about 30 seconds long. And he used to say... If they play as well as they can, and if we play as well as we can, we'll win. Off you go. So, you know, it was a complete chalk and cheese, really. So, and they were both successful. So when you say what makes a winner or what makes success, uh, it comes in all different forms, you know. Well, it's interesting as well, because obviously at Chesterfield this last season, we had a, a, a change of manager. Someone who was maybe uh, allegedly a bit more authoritarian to Paul Cook, who's very much a... Uh, uh, seems like a motivator and like take them to the pub, watch the races. Is it quite, is it quite difficult to adjust when you get a change like that in, in boss? Does it, does it take some players a lot longer than others? 
I think so. And I think what happened is, I mean, I know Cookie because I played with Cookie at Wolves. Um, so I was there for two years with Cookie. Um, and Cookie was, uh, um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying it, I thought he underachieved for his ability. He had absolutely everything. He could do, you know, he could do everything with his left foot, pass short, pass long. He had, when we used to do... Um, being tested for fitness and that, he would be near the top of the range. He had everything. He could head balls, everything else. And I think he underachieved. He should have played at a lot higher level. So he would probably have to ask himself why he didn't. I don't know, but that would be the question, you know. Um, sorry, I went off there on a tangent. I forgot what you asked me. That's all right. No, it was just um, when you when you get a change of manager and they're a completely different style of person, can it, uh, can it knock players off kilter a little bit? Well... It, it, it varies quite considerably. The one thing is, if they have... I was at Millwall and George Graham come in and within a very short period of time, he had decided these players weren't for him. And when Ron Atkinson came in, he decided that some of the players weren't for him. So when they come in, uh, you know, with Howard, we were very direct, we played the long ball. Um, and with Ron, it was all about passing and various other things. So he wanted different players for the way he particularly wanted to play. And George Graham was the same. Um, so as a result, they went about moving players on and bringing players in. And can that upset the harmony a bit in the, in the dressing room when things like that happen? Well, I think initially there's a lot of go- comings and goings. And obviously it's a bit uncertain, but gradually things settle down. Uh, and at the end of the day, you are professionals, you want to do well. Um, and as I said, Ron's strength was, uh, Howard was an exceptional coach. You know, Ron, coaching wasn't his forte. His strength was man management, and he also had a good eye for a player. His recruitment was good. So as I said, they were both successful. Howard is the last manager to British manager to have won the Premier League. You know, Ron, Ron won cups and it was at big clubs, Man United, Aston Villa, and had reasonable success with them. George Graham, he was at Arsenal, Leeds, you know. So they all won things in their own way. Um, but they're all different. They all, their emphasis on different things, really. So I suppose it just shows you it takes more than one way to skin a cat, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one thing I wanted to mention. So after, after your spell at Charlton, you had a little spell at uh, Millwall, didn't you? Um, and you won the the Football League Group Cup, which replaced the Anglo-Scottish Cup, didn't it? It's obviously yeah. still a claim to fame for Chesterfield that we're still the holders of the Anglo-Scottish Cup. <laughs> right. <laughs> the okay. last time we did it. So I think you're, that was probably the last year. I think they only did that cup for a couple of years, didn't they? The um, Football yeah. League Group Cup. What was the highlight? Yeah, it was an interesting one, that one, um, because George had taken over and he had to play the players that had that he inherited because they were because all his new players were cup tied mm. so all the players that were playing in this competition knew that their time was up so i think they wanted to show george what they could do even though george had made up his mind and to be fair to george he said he wouldn't take any credit for winning it because he said it weren't nothing to do with them he'd, in, he'd inherited his squad and he had to play them if it, if it was a league game, half of them want to be playing. So uh, that, that's that's the sort of situation. And what happens is it's not a particularly nice camp um, until the manager can get rid of the players that he wants and get the players that he wants in, mm. which is what you were talking to about with Ron. And so if he can do it quickly, if at the end of the season players' contracts are up and they can go and he can get players in, then it's a lot smoother. But if uh, in the middle of the season occasionally you have these sort of things and in this case it actually worked for Millwall because players wanted to show him what they were missing <laughs> nothing like a bit of extra motivation yeah <laughs> to win a cup yeah I thought that was interesting a, a, a slight tenuous Chesterfield link in, in terms of how it linked to the Anglo-Scottish Cup but um, I suppose they were trying a few things around them weren't they in terms of different cups and things like that yeah uh, and then um, so then you go on to Sheffield Wednesday which is obviously massive period of time hundreds of games quite a lot happened kind of give us a give us a whistle stop tour of what happened to you at Wednesday in terms of uh, kind of achievements and, and things like that well uh, I didn't think I'd be I I uh, my contract ran up at, at Millwall and George Graham offered me a new contract 
and I decided not to take it. And um, so I then became a free agent. Um, and Howard Wilkinson at that time was first team coach at Notts County in uh, which, which we called the Premiership then. Sheffield Wednesday were actually in the division below at that time. And Howard said, look, I want you to come. Uh, I know Howard had made a bid for me when I was at Charlton. So now he was at Notts County. He said, I want you to come to Notts County. So, you know, I was debating that. Then at the end of that season, Howard left Notts County and become manager at Sheffield Wednesday. So I thought that may be the end of that because obviously... Uh, his playing requirements may be totally different at Sheffield Wednesday. He may want to give the players a, a bit of a chance, see what they're like before he makes his mind up about them. Anyway, he rang me up and said, look, I want you to come up. So I come up and uh, I got married at that time on the Saturday and I went up to Sheffield on the Sunday and we started training on the Monday. So I didn't have a honeymoon. Uh, that was it. So And then I signed for Sheffield Wednesday uh, initially for two years and then I stayed for a lot longer. Then the first year we were in there, um, we got promoted uh, along with Chelsea. And to be fair, um, you know, you talk about what it, what it does to make for promotions. That I mean, there's lots of things. For instance, you know, as long as you, get, you don't get injuries, suspensions, loss of form. But the other thing is we were two teams that were better than the rest of the division. And that's not, you know, being both. It's a bit like Man City and Liverpool this year. They were better than anyone else by a long way. And that's why um, the other, t- you know, the other teams knew they weren't going to win it. You know, we knew we, we got promoted weeks before the end of the season, you know, and it happens that way sometimes. You get teams who are outstanding that dominate the division. And us and Chelsea went neck and neck. And they, I think they beat us in the end by on goal difference. Um, so we went up with Chelsea um, and we, there was a big gap between the third team and the first and second. And as I said, there was a big gap this year between Man City and Liverpool. As I say, it happens. Um, and when you get relegated, you can blame injuries, you can blame suspensions, you can blame loss of form. Also, it may be you're not good enough. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Like, uh, as I remember a few times in my time watching Chesterfield, we've had a really, really good team and we've been at the top of the table. And and I had this time a few times where I remember thinking to myself, oh, I've got to make sure I enjoy this because this is a really stellar team. Like as, as a as a player, do you get that same kind of moment when, when you're riding high? Do you ever get a chance to just stop when you're riding high one of the best teams and think actually yeah this is a really good team uh, well it's interesting uh, a lot of it depends on the manager with Howard he would never you, I think one of the I would say one of the regrets with Howard is that you, he, we didn't enjoy enough of our moments of success mm. Ron Atkinson on the other hand he made us sure that we would enjoy uh, I remember when we went down to Wembley um we were playing Man United on the Sunday. We went down on the Friday. We stayed at uh, the Royal Lancaster in London and they put on a champagne reception for us on the Friday night. We went to a restaurant in Mayfair where we were allowed to have a drink. Um, he treated us very, very well. He wanted us to savour the whole weekend, not just the match. And uh, he did. And, um, you know, it, uh, it was quite, you know, it's probably common knowledge. He had Stan Boardman the comedian on the coach going to the game who was telling jokes all the way all the way to the football match so we were one of the most relaxed teams and we and he enjoyed it you know he made us enjoy it uh, he he said you never know when these Wembley appearances are going to come around let's enjoy it and so you know just as managers have different ways and that was it and I think Ron uh tried to make it as enjoyable uh for not just us but our families as well yeah and like I say cup final so uh, n- nice having a nice having a, a Wembley trip, isn't it? Yeah, um, I mean, we at that time we just got relegated that year, um, and uh, we we played we as driver on it. We played Brentford at home in the very first game, who were in the lower level of the football league, and we drew nil nil. Uh, not a particularly auspicious start. So we went down to Aldershot for the replay and uh, we beat them 9-0. Uh, 
ironically. And then after that, you know, you're talking about gelling together and taking off and everything else. Um, and I think one of the benefits to the, as I say, when I got relegated at Charlton and when we got promoted again, and then the same with Sheffield Wednesday under Ron, one of the things was, which is, which is, which, you know, getting onto the modern day would be more difficult is keeping the same team, keeping that team. Uh, and he kept the team. And I always remember talking to Ron afterwards. He always thought he'd lose some of his players. He was particularly concerned about losing Roland Nilsson, the Swedish international. He said it's absolute certain Man United will come in for him. He couldn't believe that he didn't come in for him anyway. Uh, Roland, and this is a sign of the attitude of players at that time, maybe compared to different. Roland said, you know, I was in the team that got us relegated. I want to be in the team that gets us promoted. And, you know, that was such a, you know, what a, what a healthy attitude from a player who, you know, is playing for his country. They finished third in the World Cup, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So he's an outstanding player, you know. Yeah. Pearson now coming as McClare takes the ball up again for Manchester United. Ince is down for the moment. McClare gets the better of King. Gets the ball in across there. Blackmore right across the face of the goal. It looked as though it had to go in. And Madden just brings it away. The wily old professional keeps it into play. He's not going to waste this ball. Finds Hurst with it. Williams up ahead of him. United are really stretched now as Williams goes into overdrive. But Seed is there. Towards the final, we were struggling in the league. You know, we, we almost blew promotion because of it. Uh, but we managed to keep out. I mean, we were, you know, we were uh, a very good team, but we struggled in that division. Um, it's no, when we played in the cup to get to the final, uh, we played Derby, who were in the top half of the top league. We played Chelsea in the semi-final, who was in the top six. And we played Man United, who were in the top six. We played well against those type of seeds. Our football seemed to suit them. You know, we went down to Chelsea, beat them, come back to Hillsborough in the two-legged final, beat them. And then Manchester United in the final. So we played, I think, three, four premiership clubs to get there, even though we were a division lower. So I think it said, but in that division, we actually struggled at times, you know, um, at times we completely dominated teams and other times we struggled to hold our own. It was a strange season from that point of view, you know, uh, and I think we would have been kicking ourselves if we hadn't got promoted, but it it was not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. And and one thing I wanted to ask, as Chesterfield fans, sometimes we compare Paul Cook and John Sheridan as managers. But I suppose it's it's interesting to get your comparison of them as players, with, <laughs> with you having uh, played with them both. I suppose. Yeah, uh, both wonderful players um, at Sheffield Wednesday. It's uh, about blends and balances. Um, John Sheridan, great pass with the ball, short pass with the ball, long pass with the ball. When you got a ball, the weight of the pass was superb. It was never one of these up range of chest hit at 100 mile an hour, you know. Uh, it was well weighted. Um, but he could also do other things. He was good in the air. He had a nasty side to him. He could tackle when he wanted to. He could put in, you know, it was, his challenges were as fierce as anyone. Mm. And he was a very determined uh, player, really. Um, and, uh, you know, he was a winner. He wanted to win. Um, Cookie, on the other hand, exceptional ability. As I said earlier, um, he, he had this uh, care, lucky go care sort of attitude. And I think sometimes I just wonder if it had more of a disciplinary manager, whether that would have nurtured and developed that better. I think he might have done well under someone like Ron Atkinson. You with me? Yeah. Uh, some, or even Howard Wilkinson, you know, someone who would have given a bit of discipline, a bit of direction, you know. Um, and also... Cookie liked to be loved, you know. Um, and as I said, with with uh, Ron, with John Sheridan, it was always quite amusing. Like, you know, talking to to it to him, you know, Ron was never big into team talks, but he used to go up to Shez. He says, Shez, do something special today. Get me off my seat. Do something. And that was and that was it. And that would be his team. He'd go around to each player and basically have a comment like that, you know, to someone. And that, and that used to be his comment to Shez. So when you were playing, would you have seen Sheridan and Cook as being good managers? 
and going into management? Um, I must admit, I hadn't really thought of them as going into management. Um, and I would have thought their styles might be different. I mean, looking at Cookie's record, he seems to go for to get young players to nurture and develop them, you know, uh, and I think he's, that's part of his selling to a lot of chairmen and knowing they haven't got a lot of money and all that type of stuff. Um, you know, and I think Shares is, you know, tries to get them organised and tries to get them playing to the best of their ability. So um, I, I don't know them as managers. I've not been in their company when they've been managing. So I, I can't really give, you know, uh, a good answer to that one, if you like to put it, or, or a well thought out answer. I only know them as players and what they were like as players and then trying to imagine what they would be like as managers, really. Yeah. And how did how did football change around then? Because obviously the, the Premier League kind of came in, didn't it? Probably that was was that just after you'd left Wednesday, maybe. Um, you know, how did football all change around then? Because it was the time of Sky Sports coming in and, and everything like that, wasn't it? It was uh, everything went global very quickly, didn't it? Yeah. Um, when just going back to Charlton, just to try and give you some sort of comparison at Charlton. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. We had a manager, an assistant manager, and a two, youth team coach, and a physio. And the assistant manager would take the reserves. Okay, that was all they had. Didn't have a team bus. The manager would put the balls, bibs, and cones in his car. We used to call them BBC, and that was, and that was that was his staff. Um, then obviously, um, you're talking about. Um, the introduction of Sky uh, and that started gradually each particular uh, contract that came up for renewal they got more and more money then the overseas market started kicking in and now we are where we are today Uh, I mean the overseas market is a big big uh, it's been underestimated but it's selling the Premier League in more ways than one I remember I was the Pixside reporter for um, Premier League Productions, which used to produce the overseas production for the Premier League. And it used to be quite, quite interesting. Sky used to rave about if they got 10 million people watching a live game. Um, and on a Sunday, you know, uh, the, it used to go around the world of Premier League to over 200 countries. And on a poor day, they'd get 400 million viewers. And on a, a good day, like, for instance, when Man City and Liverpool were playing and we didn't know the outcome, you'd get a billion people watching. So, and you, that's why these teams now, once COVID is over and everything gets back to normal, you'll start seeing these teams doing, teams doing overseas trips to America. You'll start seeing them doing overseas trips to the Far East and Middle East. They've got massive fan bases there now, and their websites are in five different languages. You know, so it's a totally different world. You know, this is one of the one of the reasons I think partly a lot of American owners want to get involved. They haven't managed to sell American football, baseball, like Premier League has managed to sell football around the world globally, as you mentioned earlier. So you can see, you know, going back to the ball, bibs, and cones being put in a boot of a car. Now, look how many how many staff you have a football club, you know. I mean, it's like a, uh, it's, it's a bit like going to a mini cinema now. You need so many, uh, you know, seats there for all the staff, you know, doing it and everything else now. It's, um, it's just totally changed. It's uh, galvanised the game in, in totally ways that we, we, we didn't know. And it's mind-blowing, isn't it, really, when you think about the, how simple the game is, really, and that you can just have a ball <laughs> and you can just go out and, kick it on the on the street or whatever I suppose that's kind of part of the appeal isn't it really that it's something that's so simple that it's just a simple language isn't it I suppose well it is a simple language in that way having said that um I've seen and I you know if ever I had the opportunity to interview him I would like to ask him purely on a personal level Pep Guardiola has said that he's managed in many countries throughout Europe but by far managing in England and the expectations is so high and I'd like to sort of ask him, you know, what he means by that in more detail rather than, you know, sort of. And I think, think that's quite an interesting comment. Yeah, it isn't. Would you like to have been a, a footballer nowadays? Obviously, you earn a lot of money, um, I suppose, but there's a lot of more yeah, I mean, stuff that comes around. I've it. got to be honest, I wonder 
it's very difficult, I would have thought. I wonder how much it would have changed me because it would certainly, you know, the acclaim, the fame and everything else. And could I have handled it? I don't know. So we've got about half an hour. I've not even asked you about Chesterfield yet. <laughs> so, um, so you came to Chesterfield. So it was, uh, it was like the 93-94 season, wasn't it? Started that, so I think. <laughs> Yeah. John Dunkard coming in the February, I think, of that year, something like that. Yeah. Um, so how did that move all come about then? Uh, well, I, I was playing for Darlington at that time, and then John rang me up because uh, I was on a very short-term contract at Darlington. He rang me up and said, would you like to come to Chesterfield? So I met him at the uh, Doubletree Hotel at Norton, just between Sheffield and Chesterfield. And he said, would you come and play at Chesterfield, you know? And to be fair, part of the attraction of Chesterfield was the locality. It was close to me. You know, I was travelling up to Darlington. It was taking me an hour and a half there and another hour and a half back every day. I was in my 30s at the time. And I thought, you know, going Chesterfield would be a better option from that point of view. So that basically I signed uh, a contract at that time. And, um, and and yeah, that season, so um, your debut, I think, was against West Ham, wasn't it? Coca-Cola Cup, I think, it's, I think it says here. Uh, what, was the, what was that first season like? I think they finished eighth that season, 93-94. Yeah, I think um, that particular year, uh, it was an interesting season for many reasons, really. Um, I mean... The place was in a poor state of repair, being totally honest. I mean, the dressing rooms, uh, they were leaking from the ceilings. On match day, we'd have buckets and, you know, John Duncan would be talking around, you know, buckets full up with water, you know, because they were pouring down with rain. Uh, we used to train on public parks. They didn't have their own training ground. I mean, many an argument between people who had their dogs. So this is a public park. We're allowed to walk our dogs on the pitch and we're trying to play football. Um, so, you know. No, it wasn't the most, uh, you know, glorious sort of uh, setup, you know. Um, so you had to deal with that, you know. Uh, but you know that was that was part and parcel of the course. And um, you know, I think that one of the the things there was, um, you know, he brought Nicky Laws in, came in after it. Uh, I think what John did was. Um, like most managers, you've got to have a particular strength, you know, whether it's either being a good coach, a good communicator or a good judge in players. And um, John made us difficult to beat, you know, that season. Really, we could go anywhere. No one really would give us a hiding. But we didn't quite have enough going the other way. And he rectified that during the season for the following year. And he realised that we, we were tough at the back to break down but you couldn't keep defending for 90 minutes. You had to, you needed a bit more. You needed something, a bit of cut and thrust. And so he brought a strength in the midfield and he strengthened up front and the signings came off for him. And I think the other thing is, <coughs> it was fortunate that I think, um, I think um, that I would like to think that people like Nicky and me had a bit of an influence on the team, having played at a higher level. I mean, I remember when I went and played at Sheffield Wednesday and I had players who had been there, done it all with other players. I was trying to learn as much as I could off them. Um, and so I think the other thing that I think Nicky and I did bring was uh, I think we brought a very single-minded attitude, intensity. I think we set fairly high standards and uh, we would be critical of people. Probably I was too critical at times of people if they didn't measure up. But it meant that people cared. And obviously, I think that changed the mentality a little bit. And I think the other thing is, uh, and I think John may have known this or not, I don't know. I remember talking to Gary Megson, good mate of mine who I played with at Sheffield Wednesday. And I said, look, I said, when you were manager at Bolton, I said, like, uh, you were like a demented nutter. On the, on the side of the pitch. I said, you're waving, gesticulating, shouting and screaming and pointing and all the rest of it. And I said, what was that all about? He said, you know, he, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, we played Man United and Alex Ferguson come in at Bolton for a cup of tea and also to watch the horse racing. He said, and then we got talking 
And he said, look, I get really worked up on, on the pitch. So, you know, what about you? You must feel it inside. And he says, well, I'm lucky. You're not. He says, I've got about six or seven leaders on the pitch. You've got none. That's why you, you do it to try and get them going. So he says, you know, I've got Roy Keane. I've got Steve Bruce. And he rattled them all off and all the rest of it. He said, you haven't got them. And so John Duncan, you know, had people like Nicky, had people like me who were leaders on the pitch. And, I mean, it's a big debating point there within the game. Where have all the leaders gone? Everyone keeps saying, you know, what, what's happened? What's happened to the leaders? You know, there doesn't appear to be as many around at the moment. So, you know, it's been a change. You know, we're talking about how the game's changed. That's one of the, the conversations. That's one of the topics that people have brought up in recent times. I think that's definitely a, yeah, definitely a thing. Because over, I mean, we've had plenty of seasons re- recently when Chesterfield have not been doing very well. And, and like you say, there's sometimes you just, you're just screaming for there to be people on the pitch that are, that are organising each other and uh, keeping each other in check and, and things like that. And I had John Duncan on the, on the podcast and he was talking about how, you know, those key signings around that time was about bringing in leaders and organisers that could be, uh, that could just kind of take that team to the next level. And uh, is that something you can, you can teach people to be like that or is that just something that's in your, in your character, do you think? I think, um, the other thing is both, you know, say using Nikki and myself, um, is that we didn't ask people to do stuff that we couldn't do ourselves. So I think if people see you doing it and obviously they see all that determination, they see, you know, because we were both both in their twilight of our careers. Nikki was a little bit younger than me. Um, but, you know, as I said, um, the intent, training intensity grew when we used to have practice matches. Uh, it wasn't casual, it got serious. And all of a sudden we brought that intensity into matches and that changed the mentality really. And if you didn't, you know, someone would probably say something, you know. Yeah. Two points clear from the bottom of the third division. They may have slaughtered Rochdale on Saturday, but like lambs to the slaughter, they went down 3-0 to Chesterfield. And it was Chesterfield's Kevin Davis who struck first. Clinical finishing from a 16-year-old who's caught the eye of some of the Premier League clubs. Chesterfield showed why they're pushing for the playoffs as Andy Morris slotted in number two. And it was Morris who claimed his second and the visitors' third with a nifty lob in the dying minutes. And then that season after, so it's like promotion season, which there's been a bit of a get-together recently, hasn't there? Um, Yeah, we went down there and we had a nice night out there, you know. Um, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the players managed to get back, so we had a question and answer session, and they put some videos up and of the of that particular season montage of that and question and as I say question and answer. So <coughs> yeah, you know, so it was quite good to meet up with a few of the old boys. A great unbeaten run that season as well. What's what's the secret to kind of unbeaten runs and, and things like that? To just kind of get on a roll. I suppose momentum's a big thing in football, isn't it? I think confidence. I think also, um, you know, not losing. I mean, the year we got promoted to Sheffield Wednesday, I think we went 19 games undefeated from the very beginning of the season. And uh, you then believe in the way you play because it's proof getting results. Um and I think the other thing is, by the time that season had come round, John had tweaked it. He, his uh, recruitment was good. So he basically, as I said, we were pretty strong defensively. You know, uh, we could go anywhere in that division and give anyone a game, not necessarily win, but we'd give them a game. But we didn't have enough going forward. We didn't have enough creativity. We didn't have enough goal scorers. He rectified that and all of a sudden, Sometimes it's about blend and balances and all of a sudden you've got the blend and balance right and uh, you go on a run, you get confidence, everyone believes in themselves, you know, they believe in the training, Um, you know, you believe in things even if it's immaterial, you know, say you get three days off, you think, oh, it's great, we're winning, that was it, you know, or if you're in every day, you train every day, if you're winning, it doesn't really matter, all of a sudden these things seem to take on uh, illogical proportions at times. And what what's the secret to your kind of longevity in terms of your career? Because you 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 played on, didn't you? <laughs> a good uh, I think um, injuries. 
making sure don't get injured or if you get injured um you you know they're not serious injuries or sort of you know career threatening injuries from that point of view i think i was also very lucky near the end of my career with graham turner at walls and also john duncan because of my age and everything they used to nurture me during the week i couldn't play and train there was a lot of rest and recovery for me and as a player my age that's what i needed you know i could when i did train i trained well but i needed my rest as well and so I was different to a 19-year-old player, you know. So John recognised that, and I think that's good management, recognising that, you know, while you've got to treat everyone the same, there are situations where you have to treat people differently for the benefit of the team, you know. And I, and I think you know, it's true in a lot of sports, isn't it, that, uh, all, that all those miles over the years, they kind of stay in your legs, don't they? So I, I suppose you're, uh, you can... You can probably go a few days without training, can't you? And and, and still be uh, good and fit and ready for the match, can't you? Come a weekend. Yeah, I mean, you've got to pace yourself. I mean, you know, when you're playing Saturday, Tuesday, Sunday, Wednesday or whatever it is, especially um, in the lower divisions where you're playing two games a week and then you have cup ties and everything else, you don't get a lot of time for recovery. And the other thing is, you know, this is where, you know, you're on about leaders. You, as, a, as a manager or a coach, you don't get a lot of time to coach your team because you're on to the next game. So as a result, that's where your leaders come in and sort of driving people on. And, you know, they drive themselves on as well because they want to do well. So, you know, it, that's the type of sort of business that you're in. You know, you're playing and you do need to, you know, when to, uh, you know, train your players and when to rest. And, you know, you often hear it especially in cricket where they say they're overcooked or undercooked and it's trying to get them just right for that particular game. But as I said, when you're playing every three or four days, you do have to watch it more carefully, you know. I had a, I had a great um, uh, comment from Phil Tooley uh, oh, yeah. uh, when I said I was talking to you and he said, he said, I've got to ask you about the 3-0 win at Colchester United where you, oh, played, yes, that, yes. you played a blinder and... Uh, then you had to piece together a newspaper report and every other journalist was giving you man of the match, but you gave it to Kevin Davis. And he said, I know because uh, you used his phone <laughs> to call through the report. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was uh, nearing the end of my career, so to speak. And I started doing journalism and doing match reports for um, uh, newspapers. And they asked me to do one on Colchester v Chesterfield. So we won there and then I quickly got changed and had to go up. I had to borrow Phil's phone, I think, to you know, file the report, if I remember rightly. Well, Phil probably charged me now that he knows. Uh, so anyway, I think I lent, borrowed his phone. And then at that time, um, you had to give marks for players and all the rest of it. You know, So that was it. So, uh, I mean, the thing is, you win. It's very kind of all them journalists to say that. But when you win away from home, and someone scores goals, you know, scores, it's normally the goal scorers that get the man of the match, isn't it, really? You know, you, know, you win 5-0, don't give it to a defender because you kept a clean sheet. You give it to a striker who scored a hatchery, don't you? I mean, that's, 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 that's what defenders know from a very early age, that you're not going to get it when goals are being scored. Even though you keep a clean sheet, you know where the, where the accolades are going to go, you know? Yeah, definitely. So is it quite a, an easy transition for you then, kind of, post-playing uh, I suppose you had that that kind of to move in. um it was uh and it wasn't um because it's a different type of uh business structure altogether um <coughs> the other thing is um is I think when I started off there was a lot of people in the newspapers, radios and TV, wondering, well, you're a player. Um, how would you feel about asking someone a difficult question? You know, and they wondered how I would, you know, because sometimes they, at that time, it's changing a bit now, but at that time they always thought that uh, players gave, or former players gave managers and players an easy ride. And they were wondering, said, well, you know, whether you're a politician, whether you're a player or a manager, you need to ask the difficult question. You know, for instance, you know, just like you're talking about winning a load of games on the spin, say you lose six games on spot, you know, you have to ask a manager, do you feel that you're under pressure? You know, do you feel your job's under pressure? So it was that, I think I had to 
prove myself that I was capable if and when the opportunity was required to ask that difficult question. Uh, and obviously, you know, having to write a match report, um, it wasn't so bad for me because obviously having gone through a fairly decent education, writing wasn't that, although it was very different writing a match report compared to writing an essay for university. You know, it's a very, the format was very, very different. You know, if you're at university, you do an introduction, you do a middle bit, and then you do a conclusion. You write a match report, the conclusion's at the beginning. You know, you know who's won, and you know, it's very different. You know, it's a totally different back up, you know, turned upside down. So from that point of view, and I learned a lot of skills. Um, I decided early on um, that if I was going to earn a living, I'd need to do it through, you know, websites. I'd need to do it through radio, writing, and also TV. Nowadays, that's becoming more common. But in those days, when I was starting off, people tended to specialise. You were either a broadcaster or you were basically a writer, print or whatever. Nowadays, people intertwine the lot now. Yeah, and, and like going back to going right back to the start, really, with uh, Bob Wilson, you know, he was he was great talking about, you know, when he was first starting to cut up clips and things like that to do uh, kind of analysis of players and he'd be sat in the basement kind of <laughs> chopping things up and putting it back together to get a few minutes worth of footage. I suppose things have changed quite quite a lot, haven't they, over the, over the last few years and partly down to a lot of the teaching that you did as well. Yeah, in part, I mean, the other thing is now um, what has changed quite a lot is people want it instant. Hence, at one time, you'd go away, do an interview, go back to the studio, edit it, cut you know, cut it, uh, do a voiceover and then do it. For now, it's all live. A lot of it's far live. They don't do, you don't see as many packages like you used to, certainly. It's all live, you know, um, even local news, you know, Look North, uh, you know, Calendar, they send people out and you're doing it live from that particular Sky Sports near enough, everything is live. Um, so that's been a big change. You know, people want instant everything, you know, they want to be the first to report it and they want to be the most accurate at the time. Yeah. But getting well, you're on about, obviously, the the uh, media course. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 that media course, because you've quite a few... Expirates has kind of done that. You've talked quite a few. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> quite a few. I mean, we've had um, you know quite a lot of success um, from that point of view. Um, yeah, I mean, people like Alex Scott uh, from the women's football, Scott Minto, they were there. Mm. Um, Jason, Jason Lee was there. Felix Bastian. Um, Felix, it was an interesting one because he then moved to Germany halfway through. He had a year at Chesterfield. So he used to have to come back during the summer and spend his summer at, uh, at Staffordshire University. But he was, you know, he was keen and he did it and he, he did all the requirements and, um, you know, it was good. So, uh, you know, not all of them have gone into the media, but certainly a lot of it has helped. That They've got skills that they can transfer, you know, whether they're talking, standing up in front of people, whether they're having to compose reports or various other things. So hopefully you know, there's been quite quite a few people over the years that have benefited and still are benefiting from it. Yeah, and I've had a few players that I've spoken to that have, that have done it. We had a, a period at, at Chesterfield when quite a few did it, like Tommy Lee and Aaron Downs and uh, Barry Roach, I think, was doing it all. They were all kind of, uh, doing That's it right. around, around the same time and th and they're now kind of in coaching again or assistant managers and things like that and they've said how beneficial it is just in terms of being able to respond to media as a member of staff for a football club even if it's well not. I had one I had one uh former play he, he become uh, a director at an academy and uh bumped into him at a match and he said it proved invaluable he said the number of times I have to write a report and present it in front of the directors to understand, you know, where we are now, where we want to go, how we're going to get there. And I can write that down, give it to them and report. And then a week later, after they've read it, I go in, see them and discuss it. And he said that's proved, you know, proved invaluable. So he's used his journalistic skills to compile a report. And, and that's where I think a lot of people have, have benefited it from that point of view. Are they, are they quite an easy group of people to, to teach? Uh, a, a classroom full of football. Well, one thing, one thing you get um, is they're highly motivated. What you find with players, I found, is um, they go to university. Um, you know, most 
people that go to university are 18 years of age, probably the first time away from home. These are lads who have made a conscious decision to come to university. They've got a career. Many of them got a family. So they're not doing it. You know, they're not, you know, fresh, wet behind the ears. They're doing it for a reason. They've got, they're looking for a career after, and this may help them towards it. So they're dedicated. Um, they're willing to put the hours in. And from that point of view, when you've got people who respond, who are dedicated, put the work in, put the hours in, you know, it's, you know, it's a pleasure to work with them, really. You haven't got to work hard to get them going. You know, you, you set them tasks, you set them assignments, they do it, they ring you up, um, you know, uh, about this, about that. You know, the number of, they just keep questioning, you know, keep questioning, what do you think about, you know, and they'll come back more and more. Um, yeah, so, no, no, no. You know, um, when they come on the course, um, they've come for a reason. You know, they're not 18-year-olds who um, maybe, at, you know, say, oh, you know, they're experiencing probably life away from where they live, away from their family for the first time. You know, this is a totally different group of uh, cohort of students looking for different things. As you kind of put your feet up now at the end of career, I imagine you're getting a bit of a chance to put your feet up now. Um, how do you yeah, um, on, on your career? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, um, I had a bit of a nil health issue a few years ago, and then I decided that was it, take things easy. So, really, I do bits and pieces, but for all intents and purposes, I'm pretty much retired now. Uh, so, um, yeah, so you know, sort of try and relax and, and enjoy things, and uh you know, do a lot of traveling, go and see places, you know, have a bucket list that we try and work our way through at different times, you know, seeing, you know, we like traveling and going to different places. So that's one of the things. And um, we've got four children. None of them live near us. So we go traveling, see them quite a bit. They're in different parts of the country, even different parts of the world. So that's quite handy as well, you know. Yeah. And I suppose as a, as a footballer, you probably know different parts of the world based on what football teams are there. That's the only way I, I seem to know geography of the world. <laughs> it's just through football clubs. <laughs> yeah, well, in many cases, you, you get a bit of a snapshot of these places, you know, um, and you're there, you travel in, play the games and everything else, you know. I mean, uh, I was very fortunate to travel. Uh, there was a lot of travel with the clubs that I was with. Um, and it was interesting seeing different countries uh, at different stages um develop in different ways and the culture was very different you know going to the middle east going to the far east we went there quite a few times very very different their attitudes and values were very different so it realized you know that you know you don't you don't live in a, a cocoon you don't live in a, in a small little world that sometimes we get caught up being in a, being footballers you know yeah so finally what you are so you had kind of what three seasons at chesterfield didn't you what you kind of your presiding memories of the club and the town? Uh, I, th I think uh, I always thought Chesterfield um, was, uh, if you worked hard and put in the effort, they responded and respected you. You know, a bit like Sheffield Wednesday. Um, you know, as long as you had a go, they didn't mind if you lost. Obviously, they didn't want you to lose, but, you know, if they thought that you were trying for the team, Giving it your all, they got behind you, um, you know, and and they, you know, it's uh, not the most affluent town in the world, so they all knew the value of money. They all knew, um, you know, what what uh, what to expect, and uh, and the players at Chesterfield were that type. You couldn't, you wouldn't have any Billy Big Time. You just, you wouldn't, they wouldn't survive long in that type of environment, really, if you didn't sort of get into the culture of the town and that type of place you know, you would soon sort of disappear, really. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It's lovely to have a, have a catch-up about your career. It's always a bit of a whistle-stop <laughs> story. Whiz through a career quite quickly, but it's interesting to get your thoughts on on kind of time throughout your career. Yeah, no, no. Um, no, my pleasure for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. And, uh, you know, uh, hopefully two men and his dog might watch it. <laughs> I'm kidding, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs>